Amen. Well, you can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, church, good morning. Uh, it's crazy to think about. I was, uh, I don't know if you guys do this, but um, one of the things that I like to do when I check Facebook is I like go to memories. Like you can click on there and you can see the memories or things that you've shared over the last year or so. And as I clicked on that, Yesterday, uh, the first one that kind of came up was a video that I had shared on our church website uh, that we were about to close the doors to the building and worship online. And what we thought was going to be just a short two weeks ended up being 10 weeks uh, of gathering specifically online before we opened the doors again and slowly started to gather. Um, and, and I don't think anyone really ever expected this whole thing to go as long as it has. And yet through this whole season, I found myself wrestling with the Lord, especially in those first like three months. I was just really struggling to see God move in those moments. And I was just asking Jesus to move into my heart to deliver us, our new church plant, into something that would be more exciting than trying to figure out how to navigate uh, just walking in life through a global pandemic. And I felt myself just crying out over and over again and just begging the Lord to go, Jesus, please, I'm struggling with this. I'm frustrated with you. I'm angry. I just don't understand why you're doing what you're doing right now. And as I sat there continually begging God to move and praying and asking the Lord to change my own heart, I was really praying for him to change the circumstance. Like I was just like, would you just completely wipe this whole thing away and could we get back to normal? And I'm asking the Lord to clearly deliver uh, everyone, this, this whole world, from this global pandemic. But through all of that, while I was asking for the circumstance to change, God changed my heart. And, and in the midst of that, I, I just really started to see that it didn't matter if the circumstance changed or not, but that Jesus was clearly working on me. As I was going to him, as I was praying, and as I, as I was begging him to move, he delivered me from, from kind of a nasty spot where I was angry and frustrated with him to see him work in a situation and in time and in, in a circumstance that I didn't realize that I needed to see him more clearly and more beautifully in. And so as we've walked through the book of Acts, we've seen God move in ways that we probably would never expect him to, to move in our own lives, right? But as we jump into chapter 16, we're going to see that our God is a God of deliverance, that God continues to deliver his people from darkness, and there is no darkness that he cannot shine his light into. So in Acts 16, we're going to see that specifically in three different movements, how God delivers his people from religion, how he delivers them from bondage, and how he delivers them from death. And it's important for us to know this and to see this, because if we don't truly understand who God is, if we don't truly see him as a God who delivers, if we don't see him for the King of kings and Lord of lords who sustains and carries all things in the weight of his hands, when hard seasons happen, when, when things come up in life that we don't actually see coming and it shifts our whole world, it, it can lead us to crumble. It can lead us to start to believe that God's not actually good. It can lead us to feel like God's actually a liar. But what scripture continues to show us is that our God is good, that our God is a God of deliverance, and that he does move in circumstances and in situations in our own life. While he may not change the circumstance, he still moves in our own hearts to see him for who he actually is. So in Acts 16, we're going to see that God is a God of deliverance. So if you would, uh, let's open up to Acts 16. Let's just read the first couple of verses again to kind of set the stage for where we're at in the story. Acts 16, starting in verse 6. 
They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by uh, Mysia, uh, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to the Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So last week, uh, we were in Lystra and Derby. Hayden kind of preached through that section where we saw the start of Paul's second missionary. The second one took place anywhere between uh, 49 and 52 AD is kind of what we have it pinpointed at as we've studied. And I've actually got a map for us to look at just as we saw the first missionary journey. We see that they uh, had the Jerusalem council. They went back to Antioch and then they kind of traveled around and they're up in Phrygia, right? And they, they wanted to go north. They wanted to go north to Asia, to Bithynia, but the spirit of God moves and goes, no, you're not going you're not going there, you're going to keep going west. And so as we read this section, it kind of makes us lean in and go, how did God do that? How did the Spirit like stop them from going somewhere? Did, did he speak to them audibly? Was there like some force field like in WandaVision? Was it something that's just kind of like, uh, how did that happen? Well, the text doesn't tell us, and so we really don't know, but what we do know is that as we read this passage, we see clearly that Paul and Silas had clear direction from God, and they listened, and they were obedient to him, and so they went with him where he was sending them. And it wasn't like they were waiting for a specific place, like they were sitting and praying and just being patient and waiting in that moment. They were going on mission as they were continually walking. Right? And, and they were headed towards what they thought was going to be somewhere to share the gospel, and God just kind of redirects them, and so they keep going. And God moves in that situation to point them to a place to where they didn't expect to go, and yet he was going to move in front of them, that he was going to set the stage for something crazy and wild to happen, for a new church plant to be planted in this town uh, of uh, Philippi. And, and so as they hear from God, they listen to him and they're obedient to him as they continue to walk towards Philippi. So let's read about what happens in Philippi when they first get there. Starting in verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight from Samothrace the next day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia, we stayed out in the city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside to the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the woman gathered there, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, Thyatira was listening the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, "If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house." And she persuaded us. So they get to Philippi, which is a Roman colony, right? Big city in Macedonia, and the whole visit kind of sets the stage for what we have as the the letter to the church of the Philippians, right? 
And Paul, Paul meets these people, he plants his church, he leaves, and then he writes this beautiful letter to them. And so we can actually read that letter here today in our scriptures. And so that's kind of setting the stage for what's about to happen and the people uh, that Paul's specifically writing to. But while he's there, Paul's MO, the thing that he typically does when he gets to a city is he goes to the synagogues on the Sabbath. And, and so as he's walking into Philippi, there is no synagogue there. Because in AD 49, the Roman colonies actually started to cast out the Jews from their cities. And so when Paul went to go to a synagogue, there was nothing there. So he keeps walking and looking for people who are, who, who are worshiping uh, some God. And he finds these women in a place of prayer along the water. And it, it kind of makes me picture like he's just like going out, walking on the beach, getting ready for his tan. And he sees like this little Bible study kind of happening. And so he's like, oh, let's go see what's going on over there. And as he sits with the women at this place of prayer, he shares the gospel with them. And he shares the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And while he's talking to this group of women, we kind of get a highlight into one of the women specifically, who's Lydia. And so we learn a little bit more about Lydia, that she's a businesswoman who sells purple goods. Now, this uh, actually means that she was pretty wealthy and well-off because the color purple was hard to come by and purple cloth was hard to come by, so she was there to sell it, and so she's a pretty wealthy businesswoman. And the text also tells us that she's a God-fearing woman. Now, seeing that it says that, we kind of go, okay, was she a believer? Was she not a believer? Really, Lydia was someone who was searching. It didn't mean that she was saved, her being a God-fearing woman, but it means that she was there searching for something, that she was praying to some God, but she didn't really know who that God was. It's just kind of out in the open and up and broad, and she's a God-fearing woman who wants to know more about God. And so this opens the door for Paul and Silas to share the gospel with her, and they do, and she receives the good news of Jesus Christ, and her whole life is completely changed because we see that she responds in baptism after she hears the gospel to show and proclaim her now new faith in Jesus Christ, that he's the Messiah, the true one to bring about salvation to the ends of the earth. Now we hear this story and we kind of go, wow, this is great. God redirects them. They stumble upon some women. They preach the gospel. Somebody comes to faith. That's the dream. Like God's just kind of laying it all out there for them. And I think as we start thinking about this story, and as I start thinking about Lydia specifically, there's plenty of people like Lydia in our lives, isn't there? People who are religious or would call themselves spiritual, people who are open to conversations about God, people who would uh, enjoy uh, just exploring the different uh, conversations in terms of the spiritual world and the spiritual life that's maybe after this life. And so uh, they're open to those sort of conversations. And that's the type of person that Lydia was, someone who was curious, Someone who is opening, open to have conversations. Someone who's open to go to a prayer gathering. And uh, we have people in our lives, friends, family maybe, who are open to conversations about God. Friends and family who were, if we invited them to church or to a city group or to a Bible study or to a prayer gathering, they'd probably say, yeah, that sounds fun. I like exploring those things. As I think of Lydia, I think, man, I, I was that type of person. I was someone who would have been open to conversations about God. I was someone who in college, when people approached me and asked me if I believed in a God, I would say, yeah, I kind of believe in that. And if they asked me to go to church, I'd say, sure. Or if they asked me to go to a Bible study, I'd say, okay. And I was curious about all that. And it wasn't until someone stepped into my life to actually explain to me who Jesus was that I started to see that, that my view of God was completely wrong. 
that I had this idea of religion, that I had this idea of being a good moral person and being somebody who followed the rules and someone who was approved of by other people and this idea that being that good moral person or that successful person and having a lot of wealth and money was going to save me, that it was going to satisfy me, that it was going to fill my heart and my joy and my own soul, when in reality, I was lost. And so is Lydia in the story. And there's plenty of other people in our lives here today who are like Lydia, who are open to conversation, who have this idea of God and religion and, and this idea that if we do certain things, we'll be okay to be saved. But that's where we come in. That's where God uses people like us who know Jesus to have real conversations with them and to explain to them who Jesus is and what he has done for them. Because ultimately they're lost and their success and their works and their good deeds and their good morals don't save them, but Jesus alone can save them. And so God uses us in those moments to step into their lives to share the truth of who he is with them. Now as we think of having conversations with people, it can be kind of scary. It can be hard to muster up some courage to have a real conversation with someone. But I think there's something encouraging for us to take out of this passage. Because if we read verse 14, it says that the Lord opened her heart, Lydia's heart, to respond. Friends, this takes all the pressure off of us. Because we're not the ones that save people. We leave it up to the Lord that he opens the heart. Yet we still play a role. God uses us to share the good news with them, but he's the one who does the work in their soul. He's the one who opens their eyes to see who he is. He's the one who saves and redeems them and regenerates their heart and creates a new heart in them. Yet the Lord wants to use us and be co-laborers on this mission with him to actually share who Jesus is with them. There's one pastor who says this. He says, an effective evangelist believes in two things. The first is that salvation belongs to God. The second thing they believe is that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 14. Do you believe that salvation actually belongs to Jesus? Or are you kind of scared in those moments where you feel like you have to have some perfect gospel presentation, fleshed out, ready to go, all the questions ready to be answered, it's sitting in the back pocket waiting to kind of exchange words with people? Or do you trust that as you fumble on your words and you don't know the exact thing to say, that God still uses you to plant seeds? Mark 4.14 says the sower sows. And we continue to just ask the Lord to do a good work and to open hearts and to use us on his mission for his glory so that he would change somebody's life, someone's eternity. Do you trust that salvation belongs to the Lord? So I want to challenge you, church. Who's a Lydia in your life? Who's someone uh, who's maybe near to you? Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a, a, a sibling. Maybe it's a, someone who's near and dear to you that you haven't seen in years or months, and, and they're open to conversations about God. And they're more than happy to say yes to some sort of invitation, whether it's to church on Sunday morning or city group and uh, and you hope to just have a real conversation with them about who he is, that they're open to exploring and having spiritual conversations. They'd consider themselves religious or spiritual. 
I want to challenge you to write their name down. Pray for them. Take some time to actually take them to the Lord and to beg that God would open their hearts to receive the message of good news and that he would save them. And don't just leave it there. I want to challenge you to engage them, to actually reach out to them, to send a text message, make a phone call, FaceTime, say, hey, do you want to get lunch? Hey, Easter's coming up. You think maybe you'd want to come to church with me? Hey, I've got this group of people who I gather with on Tuesday nights. It's called the City Group. We hang out, we study the Bible, we have conversations about what God's doing in our life. Would, would you be open to coming? And then also not even leave it there, but then afterwards continue to have more conversations. They come to church, go to lunch after with them. Treat them to lunch. Take them to a meal. Say, hey, how did the sermon hit you? Was there anything that stuck out to you? Here's, here's kind of what God showed me and taught me through that 30-minute talk. Hey, at Citigroup, what would you think? The people were talking about God. They had their Bibles open. Was that weird? Like, what would you think about that? To actually engage the people in our life who are like Lydia, who, who maybe believe that there's this religious subset of rules that they have to follow in order to be made right with God, or being a good moral person, and they believe that that saves them. There are people all over our world and all over uh, our city that are like Lydia, who are open to conversations, who believe that religion saves them, but God truly delivers us from religion because he shows us that religion doesn't save, but that Jesus alone saves. That Jesus is the one that continues to do the good work in our heart, not some empty set of rules that we believe if we follow them, then God's going to be okay with us but it's actually the king of kings who saves and redeems us. And we continue to see that in this story this morning because as we keep walking through Acts chapter 16, we see that something kind of weird happens next. And so let's keep reading to see how God delivers people from bondage. Once, as we were on our way to the prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and, as, and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the, mag the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are pro uh, promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they'd severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison and secured their feet in their stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. So as Paul and Silas uh, enjoy the time that they had with uh, Lydia and the rest of the group, they, 
go back and uh, they go back to the next day or maybe week, whatever it is, how much time has elapsed, we don't know, but they go back to the place of prayer and as they're on their way to the place of prayer, they hear this slave girl who continues to yell out, these, are, these guys are promoting salvation of the God most high over and over again. And I can imagine uh, this time, and I just like to look at Paul during this because it makes me remember that he's an actual human and not some superhuman, amazingly uh, super godly person that we could never be like, but we look at Paul and we see that he's like an average human being who also falls into sin because he gets annoyed in the passage. So imagine that he's like walking by the Spirit and God's just doing a good work in his heart and he's like, okay, that girl's yelling again. I'm just going to be patient. I'm just going to keep going on my way. And then the next day, okay, yeah, she's yelling again. Okay. And then finally his flesh kind of kicks in and he's just like, oh, I'm done with this. I can't put up with it anymore. So he turns to the girl and he actually yells at the Spirit. He doesn't yell at the girl. He's angry at what the Spirit is doing. And so he casts out the Spirit in the name and in the power of Jesus. And the Spirit leaves and the girl's set free from the bondage of slavery that she's in, and it's absolutely amazing. And we kind of contrast the life of the slave girl and Lydia. If we take a quick moment to look, these two women could not be more opposite than anybody else, right? Lydia is wealthy. The slave girl is owned by people. Lydia is probably in good standing with the community because she sells purple goods and she has a successful business, but the slave girl is exploited and abused by the community right? Uh, the slave girl uh, is continually tormented by this demented spirit, and Lydia is like a good, moral, religious type of person. Yet God delivers both of these women. God doesn't just save one type of person. God doesn't just save a certain type of person, but he saves all types of people, and he delivers us from all types of evil and darkness. And the evil spirit stands no chance to the power of the Spirit of God and the power of the name of Jesus that Paul proclaims and shouts out, leave, and the Spirit leaves. And God delivers this girl out of the bondage and the slavery that she was in because her owners can no longer make money off of her. And so they get angry, and so they kind of go tattletale on Paul and Silas, and they're like, oh, uh, I can't do it anymore. I can't make money off this girl. And so the magistrates, they're just kind of like the chief officers of the town, and, and because Jews were cast out of the city, they're not allowed to evangelize, and the Roman colony w didn't really see a difference between Jews and Christians because uh, Christians kind of came out of Judaism, and so they get brutally beaten down. I love that it says the whole city started attacking them too. It, with these crazy rods, they were beaten to a pulp, dragged to jail, Given to the jailer, I love how it says also what it says to the jailer, like what they told the jailer to do. It says, hey, uh, guard them carefully. And they were just beaten up. And so he kind of puts them in these stocks. And as we think of stocks, when I first pictured it, honestly, I, I thought of like handcuffs kind of around your ankles. And so they're kind of like, like waddling around in prison, but that's not what it is at all. These stocks were actually something that were fastened to the wall or to the ceiling. And so they would tie them upside down so that there could be no blood flow to their legs. And then they would beat their legs to an absolute pulp, so when they were let go, it was excruciatingly painful to walk. And these guys were just beaten up by these huge rods. And how do they respond while they're in prison? They praise God and sing hymns. I, I don't know about you guys, but I... I don't know that I would have responded that same way. 
I don't know that in my suffering, in my pain, in the hard things that happen to me in life, that I would respond in the same way that Paul and Silas do, to where they're praising God and singing hymns to him. In fact, I probably lean towards, I, I lean towards complaining to God when hard stuff happens. Like I start going, God, why are you doing this? I don't deserve this, Lord. I, I'm working and I'm doing ministry for you, Lord. Why am I suffering? Why are you putting me through this? And it, my prayers start to become, Lord, would you please take this away? Would you take away the suffering and the pain that I'm walking through right now? And I think for us to see Paul and Silas as an example in this story, because I think those are good things to ask, and those are good things to pray, but I think we can learn something from them. Because rather than asking, Lord, would you take this away, we could start asking, Lord, how do you want me to use this for your glory? How do you want me to use this to be an example for somebody else or to tell them about? How do you want me to use the suffering that I'm currently walking through to praise you, to sing to your name? Because Paul and Silas, like, they made a choice. They could have complained in prison. They could have stayed silent. They could have been angry at God. And yet they chose to sing hymns. They chose to praise God. They chose to pray to him. And so in our suffering, while I think it's okay and right for us to cry out and to be angry and to be frustrated with the situation and the circumstance, those are all good things, but I think the Lord could also use our suffering to come alongside somebody else, to be used for his kingdom and for his glory, to where we can share an actual pain with somebody else who's walking through something that we walked through or who's going through the exact same thing that we're currently walking through. And to make a choice to see, Lord, while I don't know why you're doing what you're doing, I'm still going to sing praises and joy to your name. And why can we do that? I think of what Paul said in Romans 8, verse 18. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Because the glory that's revealed to us in the future, right, with the new creation, with restoration, with Jesus for all of eternity, is nothing compared to the suffering that we face here on this side of new creation. That the glory and beauty that we get to walk in for all of eternity because of what Christ did, for us, is so much greater than any suffering that we walk in now. In fact, Jesus promises suffering to us. And so I think one thing that we could walk away from this is knowing that suffering and pain is going to happen. To be prepared for it. And to know that even in those seasons, we can go to the Lord and cry out to him and we can be angry, we can be frustrated, but to also ask him, how are you going to use this in my life? How are you going to use me to suffer well with somebody else? to care for them and their suffering as well, to be a comfort to them. Because the suffering that we face here is nothing compared to the joy that we have with Christ for all of eternity. So we see here that uh, the slave girl is an example of spiritual suffering that maybe some of us walk through during our time here. Or maybe uh, the jailer is the time in jail during that whole time. It is an opportunity for us to look at physical suffering and how suffering, how God delivers us from suffering as well. 
how we can see that God delivered the slave girl from the spiritual bondage that she was in. While we may never know, what we don't know from the text, that whether she was saved or not, we do know that God freed her from that slavery, that God freed her from the oppression of the community, that God freed her from being a slave to those men who were her owners, that God delivered her from that spiritual darkness. And God also delivers Paul and Silas from their physical suffering. He does this really cool thing where he does change their circumstance, but even before that, he aligns their heart with his. Like, as I wrestled those first couple of months during the whole COVID pandemic, and my eyes just felt like I was just frustrated and angry at God, through my prayers, God changed my heart. He did not change our circumstance. We're still walking in it. But he moved in my own heart to change the, circum- to, to change the way I viewed him the relationship that I had with him. As I was angry and frustrated with him, I got to see him in a new light and see that he was even doing something in my own heart. And as I was wrestling, I was able to go to him and see that he's still good and see that he's still allowing us to gather and have all the blessings that I still have in life. And actually, he was tearing down a lot of idols that I had. While God may not change our circumstance, he does change our hearts. And so God delivered them in their own wrestling and in their own struggle. He delivered them to see how good he actually is. And by God's grace, he moves in this crazy earthquake that frees them from the chains. And I just kind of imagine they're like hanging upside down. Earthquake happens. They get freed and they fall down and it just hurts because they're already in pain. And they try to get up and it hurts even more because their legs are beaten up. And then we see something absolutely radical happen, how God frees and delivers the jailer from his own death. So let's keep reading starting in verse 27. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself, since he thought the, prison, the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself, because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. So we see that uh, they, the jailer kind of runs to them, and he falls at his feet before them. But I think there's one thing to kind of key in, because as the jail breaks open, he wakes up from his sleep, and he kind of looks around and sees that the doors are open. And in one of the darkest moments, fear kind of creeps in. Because what was he told to do? To take care of them carefully, to look after them carefully, and he messed up his job. And if they beat those dudes to a pulp, what are they going to do to him? So that makes him start thinking, the only way that I can escape this pain, the only way, the best thing that I could do is to take my own life so I don't have to suffer what they're going to do to me. So that I don't have to walk through what's about to come to me. And so as he's about to take his own sword, to take his own life, because he thinks everyone's escaped, he didn't actually check the sails. Paul cries out, don't do it. Don't harm yourself. We're all still here. No one left. 
When I first read it, I was like, oh, Paul and Silas didn't leave. But it says they're all still there. I imagine that they all heard Paul and Silas singing and praising God in hymns and that they wondered what was going on even in their own hearts. And so they all stayed and waited. And then the jailer turns on the lights, he runs over to him, he gets on his knees, and he's just like, what must I do to be saved? In his own suffering, he watched someone else suffer well. In his own pain, and in one of the hardest moments of his life, he wondered, how could they get through one of the hardest moments of their life? And I imagine he went to them asking that same question. And in his suffering, God used that for them to be able to share the good news of Christ with him. And his whole life is completely changed and transformed. And that joy that was in Paul is now in the jailer. That, that, sat, that satisfaction in who Jesus was and, and knowing that the eternal glory of Christ Jesus is much more than the present sufferings was something that he was wrestling through. All the suffering, the pain, the, the, the brutal beating or the jail time that he might have gotten. And he said, I, the best thing for me to do is take my own life. God used Paul to speak into his life in that moment, to lead him to Christ. It, I, if I'm sitting there in jail and this guy hung me upside down, beat my feet to a pulp, and then I get free and I kind of go to get out, I'd be trying to get out. I don't know about you guys. I'd be trying to run for it. But as he looks at the door, sees that the jailer is about to kill himself, Paul could have looked at him and said, yeah, that's what you deserve. That's what you deserve. And then left. But Paul doesn't do that at all. Paul doesn't do that at all. He, he gives him this amazing, extravagant grace. He, he, this is a man who was against him. This is an enemy who put him in chains, a man who, who didn't care about him at all, and yet Paul loved him so much to extend grace to him, to extend a hand, to share the best news of his life. While this guy was going to take his own life, Paul gave him eternal life. And I imagine Paul remembered that that's what Jesus did for him. That Paul was an enemy of Jesus who was persecuting Christians, who stood by while a man named Stephen was stoned to death and continued to drag out people from the churches. And yet Jesus intervened and stepped into his life. While Paul was an enemy, he made him a son. And Jesus forgave Paul of the sin that he had continued to commit. And this is very true for us as well. That before trusting in Jesus before understanding who he is, before repenting of our sin and looking to him as king of kings and lord of lords, we were enemies of God. That our sin made us an enemy of God and separated us from Jesus himself. And Jesus needed to die and pay for that price of our sin. That the death that Jesus took was actually something that we deserved. And Jesus just wasn't chained upside down and taking a, 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 a beating that was brutal but he was actually nailed to a cross and died a death that we deserved. Jesus didn't look to us and say, yeah, that's what you deserve, but he came down from heaven and he took what we deserve. Jesus himself did that all so that we would come to know him, and his death and resurrection actually delivers us from our death and gives us eternal life forever with him, that we could trust in who Jesus is. And so if you haven't come to believe who Jesus is, if you haven't given your life over to Christ, I want to let you know that there is no spiritual darkness that Jesus can't shine his light into. 
There is nothing that he cannot deliver you from. Maybe you lived your whole life like Lydia. Someone who thought, my, my good moral being, my good works, being a successful person, that's what's going to make me okay with God. I want to let you know that Jesus speaks into that and says, no, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can't do it on your own, but I've done it for you. Maybe you've lived your life like the slave girl who's been through spiritual darkness left and right, been abused by other people, been attacked and, and, and just continued to uh, take in a beating your entire life. I want to let you know that Jesus speaks life into that darkness and frees you from spiritual bondage and spiritual darkness, that there is nothing that can stop him from speaking life into someone's darkness. Maybe you've walked through physical hardship your entire life, financial struggles, feels like things just never go right, you can't find a job, or it's just hard to deal with your family, and everything's just difficult. Jesus speaks hope into those moments when we feel like we have no hope. There is nothing that can stop Jesus. There is nothing that we cannot be delivered from, and when we have a true, right understanding of who he is, we can truly trust in him that he delivers us from any sort of darkness that we may have in our life. And if you've been walking with Jesus for years and for some time now, and you feel like there's a season where you're just in, in a moment that you just have no understanding why God's doing what he's doing, I want to let you know that in that dark space that maybe still haunts you from a past time, or this current season of pain that Jesus is powerful enough to remove a demon from a slave girl, he's powerful enough to remove some sort of addiction from our life. He's powerful enough to speak life into darkness that we're walking through. If he's powerful enough to move dead people to life, he's powerful enough to give us hope in hardship and in trials. That's the God that we serve. Remember that Jesus delivers from all sorts of trials, that he continues to move and walk in our life in ways that we don't even understand. But we can pray and ask him to move in our circumstances. We can pray and ask him to change our own hearts. And we can trust that he is our foundation, that we build our foundation on him, not on facts about him or things we might know about him or people that talk about him, but to actually build our foundation on who he is and trusting in who he is and submitting to who he is, and believing in who he is, that he sustains all life, and he gives life, and he delivers out of darkness. That's the God that we serve, and we can trust and believe, and that's what Jesus does for us. That he saved us from death and given us eternal life with him. as a free gift. Now, as we look at Acts 16, what does that mean for us today? I think one key thing to always do when we're studying Scripture and looking at the Bible and spending time in it, as we study it and, and read, what's it say about God? What does it mean? Trying to understand it. The next question is always to ask, how does this impact my life? How can I apply this to my life? What can I learn from this passage? Well, as we look at Acts 16, I think one thing that we can clearly learn from this passage is when God's people pray, He moves. Because we see prayer all over this passage, saturated in this passage. We often say that prayer is not just what fuels the ministry, but prayer is the ministry. And so as we think of Acts chapter 16, we see that as they're heading on mission, right, what do they do? They pray and they hear from God. So they go to Macedonia and God moves in Macedonia. 
As they come to the prayer gathering, they're praying and they're asking God to move. And what does God do? He saves and redeems Lydia and brings her to new life. As they go back to the prayer gathering and desire to spend some more time in prayer, what does God do? He puts the, de- the demon-possessed slave girl right in front of them, and God frees her from her bondage to that evil spirit. Then as they are beaten and beaten, hung in jail, what does God do? They pray, and he frees them from their physical suffering and even their bondage in that moment. The jailer, what's he do? We see God move when they pray. We can learn that God moves when his people spend time on their knees. And so if you're walking through something and you need to make a big decision in life, whatever it is, pray. Ask the Lord to guide you, to give you confidence, to give you peace that surpasses all understanding, to feel like a clear direction that he's pointing you towards like Paul and Silas felt when he pointed them towards Macedonia. If uh, you're going through some suffering, ask the Lord to use that suffering in your life to teach you what he's trying to teach you, to open your eyes to whatever it is, but to also ask him to use that for somebody else so that you'd be able to encourage and speak into somebody's life as they walk through a similar suffering. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to align your heart to his so that you can walk through that with him. As we're continuing to walk in this life, we can see that God moves when his people pray. He may not always change our circumstance. He may not change what exactly is happening. But when we pray, our hearts are aligned with his. We're able to see him in a new light and to see him for who he truly is. The last thing that I think we can see from this text is hospitality and generosity. We, we see that Lydia says, hey, come stay with me. If you've judged me to be a righteous person, come stay with me. They don't have a place to stay. So she opens up her home. The jailer, what's he do? He says, come to my house. He cleans them up. He feeds them. A- and then before they leave, what do they do? They go back to Lydia's place. The people are generous. And we see when God delivers his people, they come together to be a generous, loving, compassionate people who grow together, who encourage one another, who speak life into each other. So as you go, invite people from church into your home. It's okay to hang out with one another. We're brothers and sisters in Christ to live out the family life. We say that every Sunday, that we desire to be a family. And we are a family together. Something simple is to just hang out with one another, to have each other over for dinner. And, and church, I love that this is already happening in the life of our church. I, there's a family who recently had a baby, and I was sitting with the dad the other week, or earlier this week, and as I'm sitting with him, he's like, man, I feel so loved by our church family. We haven't bought groceries in like a month because people just keep feeding us and taking care of us. I, and I sat there and I was like, that is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. That our church is responding and caring for one another and feeding each other it's one of the most beautiful things ever. I love that I get to be a part of this church family, that we're on mission together, that we care for one another, that we're compassionate for each other, that we see Jesus move in each other's lives. So as you go, church, remember that we serve a God who continues to move in our own lives as we pray and as we ask him to align our own hearts, that we see that God moves his people to be a generous and, and caring and loving, compassionate people once he delivers them from their sin. Church, as you go, remember that God delivers you from any sort of darkness in your life. To remember that there is no darkness that Jesus cannot shine his light into, but he speaks into each and every single situation. No religion, no spiritual or physical bondage, and not even death can stop our God from moving.
Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning that we were able to worship with one another, Lord, that we're able to sing songs to your name, that we're able to hear from your word. Lord, I pray for the Lydia's in our life. I pray for people in our life who are open to conversations, who maybe have a false idea of who you are, Lord, who, who are maybe trapped in this idea of religion and works and being saved by the things that they do, Lord. I pray that you would go before us and that you would open their hearts to see who you truly are and that you alone save us, Jesus, that you're the one who did all the work, Lord. And I pray that you would use us to engage them, to have conversations with them, Lord, that you would use us to tell them of the good news, that you've come to redeem broken, messy people, Lord, I pray for us just as we continue to go in our own walk, Lord, that if we're suffering, whether it's something from spiritual warfare or something from physical hurting and bondage and pain in our own life, Lord, that you would deliver us from that pain and that darkness, God, that we would see you for who you truly are and that we would remember to cling on to you, that you speak life into us when we feel like we're dead, Lord, but that you continue to bring us joy, Lord. I pray that in our suffering, Jesus, that we would be able to sing hymns to your name, that we would sing amazing grace that you've given to us, O Lord, that we would continue to remember that the present sufferings are nothing compared to the future glories that we get to see. Jesus, I pray that we would always see you as a God who delivers from complete darkness and shines his marvelous light. We pray this in your beautiful name.